everybody, welcome to our weekly study. Let me do a couple of housekeeping points real quick before we get started with the main session. Uh, if this is your first time here, we're really glad you're here and you're jumping in near the tail end of our Exodus study. That's the bad news, but the good news is every week we record video and audio of this session, that's what the camera's there for, and upload it to the YouTube channel for this ministry, my ministry, Disciple Dojo and also to iTunes as well. So you can search YouTube or iTunes, Disciple Dojo, click subscribe. Even if you don't wanna to listen to it or watch it, if you click subscribe, that really helps me. So go do that. Um, but you can catch up and as of right now, we have every chapter of Exodus all recorded. It's, it's all on the, the menu so you can watch through, you can catch the weeks you weren't here. And we're gonna do that. We, we've done it everything since Genesis 15 forward. So the goal is eventually to have all of this study available for free so we can provide the food for free we can provide the study for free and it's so that we can uh, reach not just the people here in this community around Roots Chris but also worldwide thanks to the internet technology and everything so um, so let people know tell your friends tell your co-workers tell people that don't know about the study or maybe looking for a Bible study Tell them to hop in. We're, we're always glad, and we've still got plenty of room to pack out the whole dining room if need be. So continue to get the word out. Second thing, uh, housekeeping-wise, uh, in December 22nd and the 29th, okay, so the week of Christmas and the week after Christmas, we won't be meeting. All right, week of Christmas and week after Christmas. No study. We should pick back up the 5th of January. All right, so the 5th of January, we'll pick back up. We'll probably, depending on where we are in Exodus, do a full recap of the whole book and then jump into the next part. Next year, so we spent all of this year studying Exodus, laying the groundwork. So next year, we're going to keep going right into Leviticus, and we're going to pick it up there. One, Leviticus picks up right after Exodus. Like, there's not even a break in the grammar. Literally, the first word of Leviticus is and. So it picks right up in Exodus. Two, Leviticus is the book that everybody stops reading when they get on their Bible plan and they want to read it through in a year and they get to Leviticus and they burn out because it's really weird and it's really boring. So in keeping with the spirit of what we do here, we're going to plow right into it and we're going to show you how one, yeah, it is kind of weird, but two, it's not really boring at all. And three, how it lays the entire groundwork for everything we know about holiness in the New Testament. Just like Exodus has laid the groundwork for everything we know about covenant and grace in the New Testament. Okay. Right? So we're going to keep on going through. We're going to hit those parts of the Bible that your preachers usually don't preach on a Sunday morning because people aren't just dying to come hear Leviticus. But... When you, when you hear the message of the book, as it was given to Israel, you start to realize why the New Testament says all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, removing, improving, and training in righteousness. And so that's what we're doing here in this study, is going through the parts of the Bible that people tend to neglect. That being said, we're in Exodus, we're at the tail end of chapter 32 of Exodus. Last week and the week before we looked at the incident, Israel has made the covenant. They've agreed to the covenant. They've signed it with their own blood, basically, through the ceremony of receiving the blood of the, uh, the covenant on them as Moses sprinkled it on them. And they said three times, everything the Lord commands, we will obey. 
So they, they signed the contract. And then immediately when things went a little too long, Moses is going 40 days, they get impatient. They want a God they can see. They want a God they can relate to. They want a God that's familiar to them after having come out of Egypt for 400 years of being surrounded by Egyptian gods and worship and sacrifices, all of those things they were familiar with. They wanted the familiar. So they, they sort of decided we're going to make our own version. We're going to help God by creating him in an idol, which is exactly what God himself from his very lips had told them not to do. It's not like God told that to Moses in secret up on the mountain. He told everyone. They all heard it. Exodus 20. They all heard the voice of God saying, you shall not make an idol and bow down to it. Not even if it's an idol of God. And, and that's what Aaron tried to spin it as, as the golden calf is representative of God. So we're going to have a festival of Yahweh. We're going to have a festival to the one true God using this pagan means of worship. And so last week we saw God's judgment. Moses comes down, he shatters the tablets, telling the people right where they made the agreement. He goes right to the place where he made the agreement, shatters the tablets, letting people know the covenant's done. It's broken. You forfeited the salvation that God bought you to bring you out of Egypt. You have forfeited that through your rebellion. There is no hope for your salvation to continue because of your apostasy is what the throwing down of the tablets communicated. The people repent. There's this sense of dread. There's uh, Some of them are still running wild. Some of them are still getting the people or, or trying to attempt the people into idolatry, not paying heed. So Moses says, all right, everyone who's on the Lord's side over here now, the ones who remained, the ones who heeded the call were the Levites, Moses' own tribe. They heeded the call. Moses said, your job, go throughout the camp. The people who are still openly rebelling, you are to execute them. You are to commit the execution dictated by the covenant that we all sign. You're to go through and do that. So it wasn't this case of like them, we talked about last week, grabbing swords, running through and just killing everybody. Although that's how when English translates the Hebrew, it kind of reads that way. But that's not what the text was saying. What the text was saying is go through and cut out the cancer that's still there. Cut out the openly rebellious people who are inciting Israel to worship in this way, who are still not repentant. In other words, judgment has come on those people. The worst of the offenders are taken out. It says about 3,000 died that day, or as we've seen in Exodus, the word thousand is also the word for clan or, or regiments, or it's the Hebrew word elephant. So three regiments, three clans, or 3,000, it could be either, it doesn't really matter, uh, were the ones who died that day. The rest of the people now remain to figure out what their fate would be. They, they, they turned back, they said they were sorry, they showed their repentance, but they're still uncertain because the covenant's shattered. It's broken. Everything in the first 31 chapters of this book is all for naught at this point. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 32, verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses offers to be a high priest and to mediate between the people and God, to stand between them in the gap, which is what the priest is to do. Verse 31, so Moses went back to the Lord. This is his sixth trip up the mountain. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. 
So Moses offers. He doesn't excuse the people. Here's, here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't go, God, please, the people have done bad, but... They, they, you know, the people have done bad. However, keep in mind, none of that. He just says, God, they've blown it. They've done a great sin. His response is, though, he says, if you're gonna, if you're gonna kill them, if you're gonna, uh, please forgive them. If you're not gonna forgive them, then block me out with them. In other words, I gotta stand with these people and identify with them in their sin, even though Moses wasn't guilty. He was offering to vicariously stand in the place and receive the punishment that they deserved as well. This is the role of the mediator. This is super foreshadowing of what the ultimate one who's greater than Moses will one day do. So he offers that. And he uses this phrase, if not, blot me out of the book you have written. Now this, this theme of the book of life, as it's called sometimes, or, or it could be the scroll. At this point, books weren't invented. They, they used scrolls. Books came after the time of Jesus. But it's the same word in Hebrew, Sefer. And it's, uh, it means just a bound up or rolled up writing. But in all the cultures in the biblical world, the concept of the book of life was widespread. And what it was, was there was the, the, the ruler of a town or the elder of a city or the king or whoever. If there was a group, usually a town or a village or a city, Whenever someone was born, their name was entered into the book. It was the record. It was the record of who was in the city, who was in the people, who was part of it. And it was just a way of keeping genealogical records. If someone died, their name would be preserved, you know, as a time of record. But if someone did something heinous, a heinous crime, then their name could literally be wiped out, blotted out from the book. And it was a way of not just punishing them after their execution, but also blotting out their memory and saying, basically, you never existed as part of us. So it was a way of beyond death, ultimately and finally ridding someone's memory from the community. That's, that's what the practice was. And it, it continued all through biblical times in many different cultures. But the biblical authors use the phrase a lot. God talks about it with the Amalekites. He says, I'll blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. David prays to it in the Psalms, you know, do not wipe, do not block me from your book of life. Revelation picks up on it in the end. God says, those who overcome, I will not blot their names out from the book of life. So it's not the case of everybody's born neutral, and if you do good things, your name gets put in the book. If you do bad things, it doesn't, and you go to hell. It's not like that. It's by virtue of being created in the image of God, everyone, spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking, this isn't a dynamics of the afterlife, but it's a biblical metaphor. The image is everyone born is, is part of the family in the book of life. But there are things that you can do which will result in you being removed from that book. Heinous sin will have you blotted out from the book. That was the image that was transcultural in the ancient world. And so that's what Moses is saying. is saying if you're going to punish these people, if you're not going to forgive them, then go ahead and blot my name out as well. So it was, it was taking on this and being willing to be cursed for the sake of his people. Paul will echo this in Romans 9 through 11 when he talks about his fellow uh, Jews according to the flesh who do not believe in Messiah and how he himself wishes that he could be accursed for their sake. Very mosaic thing to say, very Torah thing to say, very Christian thing to say as well. So that was Moses' offer. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. In other words, God saying, I don't work that way. It's the, the guilty is who I will punish. 
meaning I know who's guilty and I know who's not, and I can differentiate between the two. This is another little verse that needs to be tucked away when you start reading these passages where it seems like God is arbitrarily punishing whole groups of people. And you think, well, what about the innocents? God knows who's in his book. God knows who's guilty. The judge of all the earth will do what is right, as he told Abraham back in Genesis. So he says, I'll take care of that. Basically, I'll take care of that. Verse 34, now go lead the people to the place I spoke of. My angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I'll punish them for their sin. So in other words, leave the punishment to me. Trust in my nature. When the time comes, I'll, I'll know who's right and who's wrong. I'll know who gets the punishment and who doesn't deserve it. Go ahead and lead the people. So there's this glimmer of hope now. There's this glimmer of hope that the intercession has worked. But, verse 35, lets us know it wasn't just this no consequence. But 35, the Lord struck the people of the plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. So there were consequences. Now, struck with a plague. This doesn't say that, that who died. This doesn't say what type of plague. We've seen from Exodus. God sent what against Egypt? Ten plagues. Some of them were things like hail from heavens. Some of them were things like disease. Some of them were things like frogs. So we don't know what kind of plague this was, but it was basically God punished Israel to some extent. In other words, he didn't just say, okay, boys will be boys. Israelites will be Israelites. He didn't say that. There was some repercussions. Verse 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Here's God again. God, like we saw last week, he's going to enter down into Moses' territory. He's going to put himself on the level of Moses. All throughout, God's been saying, I'm the one who's bringing you up out of Egypt. I'm the one who's bringing you up out of Egypt. Now, kind of with a wink in his eye, you can imagine him saying to Moses, hey, these people that you brought up, go ahead and lead them out. He, he, he's condescending in this conversation. It's a very subtle thing that he's doing, but we talked about it last week. Leave this place and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I'll give it to your descendants. So he's calling back to the covenant. Genesis 15, all the way back. He's saying, go, the plan's still on. Go to this land. I made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to keep my promise. And you guys are still part of it. Verse 2, however, I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Those were the people of Canaan that were ripe for judgment, the people that God had waited 400 years before finally judging them. And the judgment was going to be not through flood, not through fire, but through this army of ex-slaves driving them out. God's judgment comes in many forms in the Old Testament. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Because you're a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. In other words, my holiness is a consuming fire, and you're a stiff-necked people. We talked about that image. Stiff-necked is an animal that won't go where you lead it, kind of stubborn. It does its own thing. It stiffens his neck. And that's what God's saying to the people is, I, I'm not going to go with you. I'll give you the land. I'm not going to go with you. You can't. You can't. can't. I might kill you on the way. I, you're so sinful, and my holiness is overwhelming. And you obviously haven't heard this lesson can't go with you. That's one of the worst things that they could hear. Verse 4, when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. No one put on any ornaments or jewelry. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you're a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I'll decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. 
or it says at Mount Horeb. It means that's where they did it. They stripped off their ornaments. Same verb for when the Israelites, when the Egyptians stripped off their ornaments and gold and jewelry and gave them to the Israelites. Now the Israelites have to strip off the spoils of Egypt and to leave them there. Why? Because God's already seen what they'll do with them. They use them to make the golden calf. So the, the, the gift, the, the, the treasures that they had gotten from Egypt, that God had sent them out with open arm, were the very things that they used to show their idolatry. And so God says, take them off. You forfeited that right. And so Israel does that in, in a sign of mourning. Now, verse 7 through verse 11 is sort of parenthetical. This tells us during this general time, this is kind of how things work. All right, so God has said, I'm not going with you. The people are in mourning. Now, pause. This is how things were at that point. All right, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside of the camp some distance away. Called it the tent of meeting. Now, the tabernacle, as we saw in the directions from previous weeks, the tabernacle will be called the tent of meeting. And the goal of the tabernacle would have been, should be, for God's tent of meeting to be in the center of the camp. That's where God will meet with the people. That's where he'll meet with Moses. That's where he'll receive their sacrifices. That's where they'll have a fellowship meal. He'll live among the Israelites. His desire is to dwell with his people. But at this point, right now, because of their apostasy, what happens is Moses goes outside of the camp and he makes a tent of meeting. And he and God meet there, outside of Israel. So God is communicating to them, I'm, I haven't abandoned you, but I'm not going to live in the midst of a sinful people. It's the repercussions of the golden calf, idolatry. So Moses pitched outside the camp some distance away, called it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose, stood at the entrance of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshiped. It's literally, they stood up and bowed down, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face. That's an idiom. It doesn't mean God has a giant face. Moses' face is there and they're talking because God's going to say there's, Moses can't see his face. But that phrase, face to face, that's a Hebrew idiom. It's a figure of speech. It means in person, person to person, not distance, not mediated, but right there. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. His young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Joshua would stay there, would guard the tent, would make sure others didn't come in, would, would, would preserve the holiness, would remain where God's glory had dwelled. Echoes of a future Joshua who would do the same thing on a mountain during a transfiguration. But that's another story. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, so this is one of the conversations that would have gone on in this tent. But you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name. You found favor with me. And that's the Hebrew arcane. It means grace. When that find favor in the eyes of is a word saying, uh, show grace to or receive grace from. So Moses saying, you said, you know me by name. You found favor with me or you received grace. Verse 13, if you're pleased with me, or if I have found favor, literally is what it says, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember, this nation is your people. So 
now here, God, Moses speaks back to God, face to face, friend to friend. There's no groveling of the Moses at the burning bush anymore. It's respectful, but it's a, it's, he's entered into this discussion that God's invited him into, to enter into. And he's interceding on behalf of you, and he's actually challenging God with God's own words. And he's challenging God with God's own promises. These are your people, God. I didn't, I, I wasn't, this is not my idea. This is your idea. If I'm going to lead the people, you've got to give me more than this. You've got, you, these are the kind of conversations that Moses would have with God, which were unthinkable in the ancient world for someone to have with their deity. But because of the relationship Moses and God had, this face-to-face -face friendship, he's able to speak this way in the tent of meeting. Verse 14, so Moses challenges. The Lord replies, my presence will go with you. Literally, my face will go with you, and I will give you rest. God accepts. Moses challenges. God relents. This, is the, the, this has happened multiple times already. God is allowing himself to be challenged. He's allowing himself to be bartered with, kind of haggled with, like with the Abraham incident and the cities of the plain, uh, where, where Abraham kind of barters with God, haggles him down. God's entering into this relationship. This is the thing that God of the Old Testament is, if he's nothing else, he's relational. The idea of a distant deity that's inscrutable and unsearchable is absolute hogwash. It's not a New Testament idea that God dwells among his people. It's not a New Testament idea that God wants to enter into personal relationship. It's not like the Old Testament was religion and the New Testament's relationship. All of that is garbage based on people not knowing the Old Testament. God is supremely relational from the beginning. So much so that he enters into the sovereign Lord of the universe in discussion with this shepherd in the midst of the desert. So they have this conversation. God accepts. It's almost as if Moses can't believe it because Moses says to him, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send me from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, again, reassuring him. I will do the very thing you ask because I am pleased with you and I do know you by name. So he's reassuring him again. Yes, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to do the unthinkable. Covenant's broken, not for long. Verse 18, then Moses said, and the NIV reads this kind of abruptly. It says, now show me your glory. But it's not a command. It's actually in the Hebrew. There's the, the word not is put in there, which means please. So it's like a way of saying, please, now show me your glory. In other words, Moses is pressing fully. He says, I, I want to show me your Show me all of you. Show me your glory. Show me your fullness. The glory of the Lord is God's tangible presence. And Moses realizes they're entering into this. God's doing what he's asking. Let me ask boldly. Let me ask for all of it. Let me ask for the most important thing. Show me your glory. I'm about to lead these people. I'm about to do the unthinkable, which is we're about to restore this covenant. I need, I need something more. Just I don't want it to be my feelings or my idea or anything. Just give me your unmediated presence. Verse 19, the Lord said, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I'll proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. And I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But you can't see my face, for no one may see me and live. And the Lord said, There's a place near where you may stand on the rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock, I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll remove my hand, and you'll see my back, but not my afterwards. But my face cannot be seen. So there's this, this, this final entering into Moses asks for the unthinkable, and God does the unthinkable. He says, Okay. 
I'll, I'll show you my glory. The section where he says, I'll have mercy on those who have mercy, I'll have compassion on those who have compassion, that usually gets read in its New Testament context, where Paul quotes it in Romans. And it's usually read in conversations of Calvinism and predestination, and, and you know, God can show mercy on who he shows mercy, implied meaning being, and if he doesn't, you're out of luck. It's usually quoted in the sense of defending God's sovereignty to not save people. But in its original context, that's, there's nothing about predestination in this discussion. There's nothing about God damning people to hell for eternity in this discussion. What this discussion is about is God saying, I reserve the right to have compassion on people who don't deserve it. I will show compassion to whoever I show compassion to. I will show mercy to whoever I show mercy to. God's instilling in the idea in Israel's consciousness that his grace and his righteousness, though they do generally follow certain principles of evil being uh, punished and good being rewarded, within that there's room for God's grace to invade and for God to give people far more than they deserve based on the repentance and also the intermediary or the, the intercession of a, of, a, of a righteous mediator, which in this case was Moses, and the whole sacrificial system that God's building and putting in place. But there's hints of this, and it'll expand in the Old Testament, that God's grace will be far beyond God's judgment. When he goes in the next chapter, he's going to go in front of Moses, he's going to proclaim his name, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, faithful, blah, 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 punishing the sins of the uh, uh, fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. People get hung up on that, and they miss the next part. It says, but showing grace and favor to those who love him to the thousandth generation. In other words, if my anger has a three-generation effect, my grace can have a thousand-generation effect. It's another Hebrew figure of speech saying God's grace far outweighs his judgment. And that's crucial to remember when you're reading the Old Testament, because people who don't read the Old Testament a lot think, all about God showing judgment, 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 judgment. God's grace far exceeds his judgment. The reason there's so much judgment is because of the nature of what's being written and the concept of the covenant and the fact that what we're reading and what we're being recorded is the discipline of a firstborn son by their heavenly father, which is Israel. So we got to keep that in mind as we go through this. But next week, chapter 34, God is going to officially do the unthinkable. He's going to restore the covenant. Everything that happened in Genesis 20, the receiving of the covenant, Genesis 19, Genesis 20, this is going to be 2.0. They're going to get a second chance. They're going to get an undeserved chance next week because of the intercession of Moses. So come back for that. Um, bring a friend. Enjoy some food. We've still got seconds if you want some. And we'll see you next week. Have a great week, everybody.